Hello everyone, welcome to the latest Beef and Lamb New Zealand webinar. In fact, this is part of a series of webinars with our environment team on some of the activity they're up to. I hope you've already seen it, but if not, you may want to watch the one we did earlier with uh, Julia Bayman on the whole environment strategy. And today we're going to talk with um, several of the team on, on different aspects of that strategy. So first I'm actually going to hand back over to, to Julia to set a wee bit of the, the scene and the background and how this all ties into the environment strategy. So. Welcome along again, Julia. Um, just before we start, your role in the Beef and Lamb New Zealand and the Environment Team? So my role is Environment Strategy Manager and I bring together um, all of the experts that we have sitting in the Environment Team. So there's six people in the Environment Team that um, report through to me. And so this is the first of a series of about four or five webinars and I think we're going to meet pretty much everybody in that team over we those. Alright, so what's, the, what's it all about? Why are we doing this? So I guess um, we wanted to, as the environment team, put um, some information out to farmers about a bit more transparency about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, and so through the, the series that you're going to, to listen to, I guess the key messages that we want to keep reaffirming to you is that um, the purpose of our roles is around um, helping farmers to help themselves. Um, and a lot of what we do, it's around um, finding process not prescription because our focus is on outcomes not inputs and the reason that we do all of those things is because uh, we believe that success is resilient uh, farms and farming communities and farmers having the freedom to adapt and, and innovate basically so as you as you hear through everything that we do just try and keep those in the back of your mind as to um, that this is why we're doing those things. Excellent. So we're joined by two other members of the team today, and our lead on this one is Karina Jordan. So Karina, you're, well, tell us what your role is, what you do day to day at Beef and Lamb New Zealand. I'm the Environment Policy for Manager for Beef and Lamb, and I'm based in the North Island, and I live in beautiful Rewa. So what does Environment Policy Manager actually do day to day? I essentially run around the country and <laughs> I fight fires. Yeah. And what I've been doing a lot with my time recently actually is going out into the communities and engaging with farmers and just giving them some information around the policy that's changing in New Zealand at the moment and some of the drivers behind that policy and also in those conversations we're starting to bring in context around the international environment and changing attitudes of consumers in relation to foods that they're intending to purchase now and in the future. Alright, and how did you end up working for us, or what, what was your experience and what have you been doing before you came to work for us, Karina? That's something that I don't want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I've been working in the um, sort of environment policy and law space for the last nine years and really focused on looking at agriculture and putting in place frameworks which promote sustainability in agriculture but also provide for resilient farming business um, and, and vibrant, I suppose, farming communities as well, but within the context of environmental limits and that conversation around environmental limits has really been growing, I suppose, in the last five years in particular. Mm -hmm. So before this I worked for an environmental NGO, Fish and Game, and was their National Environment Manager, so very much engaged in some of those uh, first cases off the rank which gave effect to the National Policy Statement. Cool. So I don't know whether that's poacher turned gamekeeper or gamekeeper a little, turned poacher. Yeah, that's, I get that a lot. <laughs> and then people are surprised. You're like, you're actually on our side. And very much so. I, I see that um, working within environmental limits and getting the best of our natural resources really underpins farming in New Zealand. And I think it's going to underpin our farming brand, which is going to become even more important leading into the future, meeting those international consumer demands around, around food. Cool, thank you. And so Karina's going to be the lead in this webinar, but you'll also hear from time to time from Lauren Phillips, who's um, joined us. So Lauren, what's your uh, role? What do you do day to day for Beef and Lamb New Zealand? I'm also Environment Policy Manager based in the South Island, so uh, very much similar to what Karina does, again, based in the South Island. Okay. And your background, what's your experience, how did you end up working for Beef and Lamb and what did you do beforehand? Uh, I was originally a lawyer, which I have to put out there right at the beginning, um, because <laughs> it, it tends to explain a few questions for people I find. Um, and I moved into an environmental space, so I was working as an environmental uh, consultant um, for a few years, basically focusing on rural services, so that's planning, it's overseer, it's um, farm conversions, it's feasibility studies for alternative land use, uh, it's a bit of planning, so on and so forth. Brilliant. All right, look, we'll um, get on with the show. So, Karina, um, I think we're going to hand over to you to have some of the background about, um, yeah, 
some of the stuff you've experienced, some of the context around all this stuff and how we apply it. Oh, excellent. So this is some of the information that I've been providing through farming groups and different forums around the country. Uh, some of it is a little bit confronting at the beginning because I talk about those tensions that are really facing farming in New Zealand. But if you just bear with me and we, and we go through this, at the end we also start to talk about what some of those solutions are and they're really simple to follow. And we've got the rest of the team that are going to pop in and talk to us about catchment groups which are emerging across New Zealand as farmers start to take ownership of these issues and look for solutions that meet their needs and the needs of their communities and also underpinning that is also farm environment planning. So let's start off by just talking about some of those tensions that are coming at us that are here at the moment and which are emerging. So we know that over the last decade there has been growing public concern around agriculture and its impacts on fresh water. Originally that was focused uh, quite clearly on dairy farming and its impacts on freshwater but over the last couple of years we've also seen the public growing concerned around some of those activities that the red meat sector undertake uh -huh. and I think in 2017 we saw Radio New Zealand run a series called Waterfalls and they started to look at intensive winter cropping which they called spray and pray and that was focused on the Rangitiki uh -huh. River in the Manawatu and then they also started to look at some of the feedlots over in the Hawke's Bay mm -hmm. and that was um, also associated with the Havelock North water crisis. We, we obviously know that the water crisis wasn't a result of those feedlots but the public at the beginning did form that loose connection and they were looking at those feedlots to blame mm -hmm. for those water quality issues. Okay. So this is an emerging issue you know, across New Zealand and it's not going away. We're actually seeing that um, heating up. I'm just flicking through here. One of the main issues we've got in relation to water quality in New Zealand is increasing nitrogen levels and so this is very real and we've had a lot of uh, science work undertaken in relation to that. And so we're seeing those nitrogen levels increase in areas where we've got intensification of agriculture. So those links are well founded. What we're also seeing internationally is this growing concern around meat and its impacts on the environment but also its impacts on human health. And some of this research is coming through in the leading international journals and it's gaining traction. More recently, we've seen a focus on beef feedlots and there's been comparisons in relation to how we produce beef through those feedlots uh, on the environmental footprint, uh, on the health benefits of eating red meat to humans or, or those issues, and also starting to link in some of New Zealand's uh, agricultural systems as well. And this is a report just recently released over the last couple of months, uh, highlighting high meat diet being bad for the health and the planet. So these issues are very, very real and they're gaining consumer focus internationally. Beef and Lamb has also undertaken a review of some of those disruptive proteins which are emerging or being developed internationally and looked at the potential impact that they're going to have on New Zealand's red meat sector and our market exports. I think we all thought that we had a few years, at least mm -hmm. five, to yep. really consider the impacts of these impossible, you know, things like the impossible burger, artificial or, or proteins or plant-based proteins, but it really hit ho home when Air New Zealand announced that they were going to mm. now serve the Impossible Burger yep. on one of their long-haul flights uh, back to New Zealand, and that gained a lot of media attention. And we know Impossible Burgers, you know, they, they've got a, a budget of around about $120 million and they're backed by some very, very um, impressive investors like Costler Ventures, Google Ventures and Bill Gates. So they're only going to be gaining um, market momentum, I suppose, in the future. And just to land that back at home, mm -hmm. over the last couple of days, uh, people would be aware that we've also had SAFE start to engage in this conversation as well, and we've had drone footage of one of the uh, intensive feedlot systems in the South Island, which is raising concerns again about you know, some of the red meat sector's more intensive farming operations mm -hmm. like the intensive feedlots that we have in areas like mm -hmm. the Hawke's Bay yep. and the South Island. So one of the things, and we were, we were just talking with the, the wider environment team before this, was um, they're still out and about, and every so often they get the message that we don't have something to worry about, or, yeah, some areas do. I mean, and this might be a question for any one of you, um, does that apply to any sheep and beef farmer in New Zealand, that they don't have anything to really worry about? I think what it means for us, and I'm going to talk about this next, is that what we're seeing in New Zealand is 
uh, concerns around through our public in relation to agriculture and its impacts on the environment. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing off the back of that is changing policy or rules in New Zealand to address those concerns. Mm -hmm. Some of the con public concerns are founded in science and fact. And some of them are, are like perceptions that are building. And those perceptions very much have an impact on how we farm yep. in New Zealand. Whether or not we're causing an impact or not, they do come mm. in. They will be coming in and impacting on us behind mm. that farm gate. I don't think anyone or any farmer in New Zealand is really immune mm. from that public pressure and what it means to their businesses going forward. So in terms of, there's real issues in terms, you know, you talk about nitrogen and water and those yes. sorts of things. I mean, the feedlot issue in the last couple of days is a classic because the footage was from a drone. Yes. So social media, information technology like that is compounding issues or creating issues that don't exist or is it actually just making the public more aware of them quicker than they might have in the past? I mean, there's real I issues a little there. Bit, so yeah, I think the, the issues are real and in some cases they're perceived but perceived issues have mm. real impact yep. on how we farm and what yep. we can do in the future. Yep. So it's not something we can discount. We really mm. need to be aware of yep. that public perception around mm. what we do, why we're doing it, and the impacts, real or not, of mm. our activities. Yep. And, and the think way, about that very clearly. Yeah, yeah. And the way people can influence perception is suddenly a whole lot more... Um, Effective or powerful, you know, to get footage of the feedlot, for example, would have been pretty tough. Yes, that's to, right. They yeah. say, you know, a picture tells a thousand words. Mm. And so the public's not not just responding to, you know, their, their understanding of what is an environmental mm -hmm. pressure, but also how they feel about a behaviour yep. or, or what they see. And I suppose with the feedlots in particular, there's a very emotional response to animals standing in mud, whether or not that has an impact. You know, mm. they, they are perceiving that that is an impact on that animal's welfare. Yep. And so there's a very emotional response to that. Yep. Now, look, it was if you listen to the webinar that Julia did a while back, I mean, we talked a wee bit about it. It's very important here that we're not doing a lot of this stuff to talk to greenwash and to try and get away with things. There are real issues, and we want to deal with them. I don't know, Julia or Lauren, did you want to add anything just on that? Um, I guess, um, and in, it's probably a, a really nice segue actually, just through to Karina's next slide around the social yep. license to operate. Right. Yeah. Good thing. Right. Next slide. That is a very good segue. So we hear a little bit, we've been hearing about social licence to operate, and I suppose when I first heard social licence to operate, I was like, that's the very woolly term, and, and I don't think that is real. But what we're understanding, and this is especially coming through um, you know, internationally, is that social licence to operate is very, very real, and when you lose it, that impacts on the resilience of your business and its, future, and its freedom to operate going forward. So social licence to operate, if I'm going to summarise it, is the ability of an organisation or a sector to carry on its business because of the confidence society has that it will behave in a legitimate, accountable, socially uh -huh. and environmentally acceptable way. And it is deemed to be the foundation for enhancing legitimacy and acquiring future operational certainty. So it's uh -huh. really important in relation to our businesses and the future of our businesses, in particular in New Zealand. And it's about realising opportunities and lowering risk for the business. So I've been giving this presentation and asking farmers about where they think we're sitting uh -huh. in relation to our current status of social licence to operate. Uh -huh. It's a little bit, it varies depending I think on the region where I'm in at the moment and the issues that they're facing. However, what we've been seeing from the farmers is that they've been identifying that they think we're sitting around a three mm -hmm. or a two mm -hmm. in relation to social licence. So they're accepting that there are some real issues and tensions out there and that those tensions are starting to impact on their businesses and their freedom to operate their mm -hmm. business in the way that they want to. Okay. So and it's very real. Do they feel that's, that, you know, using that scale that that's fallen from where it was? Yes, I think originally we thought, you know, farming was the backbone of New mm -hmm. Zealand. We were extremely proud to be farmers and we wanted to step forward. We were known as farmers. Mm -hmm. And now when I talk to farmers, um, I talked to a lady yesterday really, and she, um, they had vehicles and they were going to get license plates on them. This is just an example. And they were thinking about getting the name of their farming business on those mm -hmm. license plates. And now they're thinking, well, we don't really actually want people to identify us yeah. as farmers. And we're thinking about getting something else on those license mm -hmm. plates. So we've gone from this era of being extremely proud about what we were doing, an integral part of New Zealand's fabric and our culture, to now feeling embarrassed about being farmers, mm -hmm. not very proud about how the public is seeing us, um, and wanting to step you know, back behind that yep. farm gate. 
So, yep. so it's a real issue, I think, and, and part of beef and lamb strategy mm-hmm. is to really um, create vibrant farming businesses and rural communities um, that are empowered and are valued by New Zealanders, part mm-hmm. of our society and part of the fabric of who we are and where we yep. come from. So, you know, in a nutshell, Julia, what the work of your team as part of Beef and Land New Zealand is ultimately aimed at lifting us up that scale, effectively. That's that... exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, and so that, you know, we talk about thriving rural communities and resilient farmers is, is, basic, is basically that, that um, New Zealanders um, really support um, New Zealand farmers, sheep yep. and beef farmers, and really... Um, buy into mm. what they're doing and see that as a, like a really good thing yep. for our country yep. and yeah so our whole work program is designed around creating that future yep. Yep. and next slide you go thanks I'm just going to uh, flip now and talk about some of the policy which is underpinning what's coming through regional councils um, and actually what's coming through at the national level through national policy and future changes that we might be seeing. So I'm not sure if much many of you know what the Land and Water Forum is, but essentially the Land and Water Forum is a national multi-stakeholder group that was developed, which is represented by leaders across the dairy industry through beef and lamb. It had representation from the environmental NGOs, representation from regional councils, from our energy companies, and it was set up to essentially advise the Labour government, national government, and then the Labour Greens government around water, land, how we should manage land use to address water quality issues in particular. And so the Land and Water Forum has a number of reports uh, out there which you can go back and have a look at. Those reports sort of underpin where subsequent governments have gone in relation to changing regulation and then how regional councils are picking up that national direction and reflecting it through regional plans and ultimately through the rules which come in and impact Uh on how we farm our businesses. What happened at the beginning of this year was that Minister Parker and Minister Guy went back to the Land and Water Forum and they asked them to consider uh, four key issues in relation to where the government is going to go on these and subsequent national changes to legislation and policy. The first issue was how we can hold the line, and by that they mean how can we maintain water quality and stop it getting worse. Uh And obviously when they're thinking about that, they're thinking about agriculture and how we manage that in the short term. The other issue that they talk about is allocation, and if any of you are farming up in Waikato, you'll know exactly what I mean by allocation. But essentially, how do we allocate a resource like nitrogen across the landscape in a way that is equitable um, and provides for future land opportunities. Mm-hmm. How do we address issues in relation to sediment? So we all know if, if we're hill country farming, you know, we've, we're probably pretty good at thinking about soil conservation, erosion management, um, farm environment planning and how we manage that. So the government's very focused on this area as well, on, on how we're going to manage sediment in relation to those risks going forward. And then the last one, and we're hearing a lot about this, especially probably if you're living in Canterbury, is good management practice. So Uh those are the things that society expects us to do when we're undertaking an activity like strategic grazing when we're thinking about winter grazing. So what we know from this interaction with the government and in the release of the Land and Water Forum's fifth report is that we're likely to see changes in legislation at the end of this year or the beginning of next year which address those four key issues. That is, how do we maintain water quality? How do we allocate nutrients across the landscape to people or businesses? Uh How do we manage sediment? And how do we ensure that farming is, is undertaking good management practice? So I just want to drill into that one before we go into the next slide because water is probably the first thing that comes to people's mind when they talk about environmental issues and there's eternal debate around it and what has actually happened in your summary to water quality? Are we seeing ups, downs, overall, what's happening? Have we actually, with things like the Land and Water Forum, some of the activity that's been happening over the last five, ten years or more, have we actually had any positive impact? What's happening? I think so. I think the management area that we should think about is the catchment level. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it at the catchment level, well, you farmers will know 
in relation to your catchment where you're sitting, but some catchments are extremely good in relation to water quality. Mm-hmm. Other catchments have some issues, mm-hmm. um, and those issues are specific to the catchment. Some catchment might catchments might have some issues with nitrogen. Mm-hmm. Some catchments might have some issues with sediment or phosphorus. They're not all the same. And really, if we're thinking about land use and water quality, we should be thinking about it at the catchment level. Mm-hmm. And the water quality is generally a reflection of of our geology, our climate, um, and our land use. Mm-hmm. It's a combination of things. And also, if we've got towns and cities as well, and we know that um, point source discharges yep. from those areas have a problem as well. So, a lot of the information we hear is like national information. Mm. The national information will say that nitrogen overall is getting worse, and mm-hmm. so we have to really focus, I think, on nitrogen. But but really, that the management level I suppose is at the catchment and so we need to be thinking about the issues at the catchment level and those issues are catchment specific. Yep. So, so some areas are getting better, some areas are getting worse and it yep. depends on you know the parameter, it might not be all things, it might just be yep. some things. The nuance is important rather than talking about it generally. Lauren, yeah that's right. And this ties answer? back in to what Julie and Karina were saying about um, we can't just sit back and say well it's it's not an issue for sheep and bee farmers. Every farmer needs to actually sort of think about what they're doing on farm and mm-hmm. what the effects might be on the environment, regardless of whether it's nitrogen or not. Yep. The wider effects. Yep. That's right. And so what we're saying, you know, it's not about one thing or the other thing. It's actually thinking mm-hmm. about, you know, having a resilient farming business mm-hmm. and underpinning that is, you know, understanding our soil, our geology and our climate, which is what we do anyway because we have to in order to be able to farm. Mm-hmm. Um, and be profitable, but it's really connecting those things. Mm. And also the important thing is is connecting it in a really transparent, credible way and being able to tell your yep. story about what you're doing and why yep. uh, to a general public or, or, or to a regional yep. council when they ask for it so that you've got a level of protection in relation to yep. what you're doing and why you're doing it. Good. Julia? And so I guess just picking up on, um, you know, Karina's talking about how there's an integrated approach um, and the way that farmers naturally work is to integrate all of these different systems and they think of their whole farm. But often when we're dealing in the policy space, we're dealing with single issues and councils and governments often only think in single issues. And so a big part of um, our jobs is to, to... Um, help integrate and bring all those different things Mm. together and ensure that when regulation is written that it's um, when it's targeting the right things it's not I guess that we're focusing on our high power activities so for Mm -hmm. some farmers nitrogen is not an issue but we can still potentially make some improvements through sediment and phosphorus and those things and so making sure that when rules are written they give the flexibility um, for farmers to to stretch Mm. and do whatever it is that they want to do but while still operating within the environmental limits and that's different for different farmers as yep. well depending on what their land is like. Yep. Yeah. So it varies but I think Lauren sort of everybody needs to get engaged. Mm-hmm. You can't sit back and say it's not going to be my problem. Yeah. Yeah that's, an, that's a really excellent point and, and I think it's one with um, just taking a moment to look at. So with this slide we're very much thinking about water quality mm-hmm. but I think it is really important and this is something that the policy team is doing but I think this is something that farmers are inherently aware of is that we're dealing with complex ecological systems and we need to be thinking not only in relation to water quality but also you know maintaining the health of our soils and um, looking at biodiversity where we have that and thinking about climate change and if you don't believe in climate change it's climate adaption and having a, a farm system approach and a catchment system approach which is where farmers are thinking and we need to be ensuring that we're all on the same page and actually starting to own some of that language and talking to regional councils and you know the national government about taking holistic approaches not focusing on a single issue but thinking about the whole picture because we know that when you focus on a single issue you can actually have a perverse outcome in relation Mm. to other things Um, so if we think about systems then at the end of the day we'll we'll end up with frameworks that work for everybody and are sustainable and enduring in the in the long term brilliant so just pick up on a couple of things Karina mentioned there. If you're listening to this and you're thinking this is a lot of policy and what do I actually do, then uh, look out for the other webinars we'll have up because they're going to talk about, uh, Karina mentioned the catchment groups and, and land and environment planning and some of those things. But let's keep going, set in the background because I know there's a fair bit more to cover. Uh, we're on to the next slide. Yes, but we'll just make it quick. 
So I'm just doing a quick segue uh, to give you a little bit of information about what regional councils think about when they're writing regional plans and regional rules, because when you understand the process, then you're empowered to engage them in that conversation and actually start to provide some input so that you have some ownership um, of those outcomes. You can mm -hmm. actually start to hold the pen for the regional councils. And this is the conversation we're having a lot with farming groups and we are getting farming groups established and they're essentially holding the pen for the regional council, co-crafting policy which works for them. And that's our vision of success and very much where we're focused going forward. So quick 101 planning. Now this doesn't only apply to regional plans. Right, but it's I'm going to stop. NRM, what's that acronym mean? Oh, Natural Resource Management. Good. Whoops, my bad. Carry on. Okay, awesome. So this approach doesn't only just apply to regional councils and their regional planning, but it's a very similar approach also if you're thinking about setting up a catchment group and also when you're building your own farm environment plan. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really good principles to get your head around. So the first thing we do when we're looking at a catchment or in uh, thinking about policy is we want to identify what the values are mm -hmm. and I'll land it in the catchment area because everyone will have examples or, that they can essentially bring to mind when they think about this. So when you're in a catchment and you're thinking about your values and what we're seeing is that we think about cultural values, we think about reflection of societal values, mm -hmm. we include economic values, we include values around biodiversity, we include values around recreation and mm -hmm. then we include values around fresh water for example like the fish that live in that water body mm -hmm. and what they need so the first part is identify your values the second part is to look at your natural environment and work out whether it's healthy or whether it's got some issues mm -hmm. uh, water quality is top of mind at the moment so we'll use that example so you look at your river or mm -hmm. your stream um, and it might have it might it might have issues in relation to its fish species they might not be so great and so you'll look at why are those fish not doing so well and there might be issues with sediment or there might be issues with nutrient and so when we do that we can identify what our desired state is you know what how healthy we want that resource to be when we can mm -hmm. look at its current health and that gives us an indication of whether it needs to get better or whether it's great and it just needs to stay there mm -hmm. from there we can look at you know, why is, that, why is that water body in the state that it's in? What's, what's driving that change if, if it's not doing so well? And the example that I've provided in that last sort of like pie graph is an example from the Waikato. Mm -hmm. And essentially that shows the contribution of different land uses to water quality in, in one of the rivers that yep. they've got up there. Yeah, and so we're seeing from that, that 44% the uh, blue is dairy, and then the grey is sheep and beef farming, 44% um, contribution to that issue is, is dairy farming, 20% contribution of that issue is sheep and beef farming, and then we have some urban contribution in there and, and some different land uses as well. So when we work out what's driving you know, the state of that freshwater body, then regional councils think about how they can intervene. Mm -hmm. And they have two ways of intervening. They can use the carrot or they can use the stick, they often use a little bit of both. Yep. What we're seeing at the moment, or historically, they used to use more carrot than stick. Yep. And the switch that we're seeing at the moment is there's much more stick than there is carrot. And that and sticks the rules, mm. and the carrot's the sort of like funding um, assistance that they yep. might provide. Horizons has got a really great example of this. So they use as a carrot the Sustainable Land Use Initiative plans. Mm -hmm. And they're a fantastic initiative up there, which are really helping farmers mm -hmm. um, undertake farm plans. And, and manage the resources that they've got there so that they can maximise their profitability mm -hmm. while minimising environmental impact. Um, but they've also got some rules, and those rules might be around uh, land disturbance, might be about regulating intensive farming activities and things like that. And so I think this is the, when you understand this process, then farmers can think about what they want to do about it because in relation to giving effect to national legislation, it's a fixed base, which means that to intervene with regulation, mm -hmm. the regional council or the government needs to have a clear reason in relation to an effect that they're trying to manage. Mm -hmm. So if farmers are managing it for themselves in a voluntary way, and there's no effect, mm. or they're addressing those issues, then it's less likely that a regional council or a government will intervene with a stick. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a really 
if you understand this process, then you can be empowered to actually do something about it and get ahead of regulation, be better than it, take ownership of your own destiny. Yeah. There's a couple of questions come up there for me. One I know you're going to address a wee bit later and we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, values and objectives. So, you know, using the, the classic language of triple bottom line planning, there's, there's economic values, there's environmental values and the social ones. Is there any uh, guide or any hierarchy in terms of which are given priority or is it a matter of just trying to settle out amongst them all? That's a really good question, right? I think um, back in the day, you know, it was, it was the definition of sustainable management, which is uh, economic development um, while or and or, mm. or yeah, providing yeah. for environment. And so when we thought about it like that, the economics would trump mm-hmm. the environment. It was always economic first and, and maybe yep. environment second. Mm-hmm. But what we've really seen, especially when the national policy statement came in, is we've seen uh, a, you know, a rebalancing of that, I suppose. And so now very much the courts or the, you know, the government or the regional council is thinking about economic development or economic benefit within environmental limits mm-hmm. and so those the environment is now given precedence I suppose over um, economic considerations and so that's the rebalancing that we've seen and, and that's why we're seeing different decisions come out from the courts than what we've seen in the past mm. and, and a more strict approach I suppose to managing land use to achieve specific environmental outcomes. Julia you want to add to that? Oh uh, yeah well I was kind of on the same same but different really so what I was just thinking before is you know as Karina was talking um, for people who aren't familiar with this process it can seem rather daunting so I just wanted to reiterate that part of like what we do in the policy team is to help farmers engage in policy processes mm-hmm. and so like Karina said it's really important for farmers to get engaged into the policy process um, and when that happens in your region we um, we come in and we step you guys through what that that um, processes and so we've developed like specific resources to really help farmers with that and that includes um, summarising what the proposed plan might be and, and pulling out those key messages um, and how to write um, submissions that speak volumes and how to um, present at the hearings and those things and so I guess I just wanted to reiterate that um, don't feel daunted by these yeah. things um, it's really really good background to have um, and so that you can understand that and like Karina said um, it's repeated through like this process is repeated through a number of the mm-hmm. different things that we do um, but don't feel um, like you're on your own either yeah. like when, when these things happen in your region we're, we're there to, to help you through those yep. and there's not going to be a test at the end of no, this right. just trying to give people the background <laughs> there's a lot to take in but that's why it's going to be online you can come back and watch it again and again as you wish this is the last complicated slide, I promise. And so, and this is the last sort of thing to think about. So the real shift that I think we've seen in regional plans is that they're now setting quite clear numerical environmental outcomes. And so they sort of didn't in the past, everything was really narrative. It was like sustainably manage your land and do some good stuff right to achieve um, life supporting capacity or ecosystem health but what's happened now is when they're giving effect to the national policy statement they're now including clear numerical environmental bottom lines for example for water quality in their regional plans Mm -hmm. these originally were sort of set to provide for what they called life supporting capacity or ecosystem health but the other thing that's now happening is that they're engaging that community in a conversation about what their values are for fresh water which I talked about before and in those conversations you're seeing now a reflection in the water quality outcomes of recreational values and cultural values and they can lift up the environmental bottom line that gets written into regional plans. And so what that means is that there's a clear outcome that regional councils and and communities are are trying to achieve, and then they link the things that might impact on that, such as land use, to those. And when we're thinking about water and this process, you can sort of think about water as sitting in a bucket, and this is what I'm showing here. And so those two red lines are where the numerical environmental bottom lines might sit. And where they sit dictates how much is left over for people to use for example to take out and irrigate Uh their pasture or to take and use for stock drinking water Uh we're thinking about water quality it's the amount that we can put in in relation to nitrogen or phosphorus or sediment or or pathogens Uh so we know we can put some stuff in and Uh and, and things will still be healthy but what this says is how much we can put in there and in some catchments in New Zealand if you're in Canterbury you'll know them like Heinz 
there's a real issue because we've used more or put more in mm-hmm. than now what our communities tell us we can use or put in. And when that happens, then some people will have to take a bit of a haircut. It means that we can't use as much and, mm-hmm. and that's phased mm-hmm. out over time. And that's causing some tension within our communities like Waikato at the moment when we're thinking about nitrogen in particular up in Waikato, some people can use more nitrogen than others through that regional plan and that's causing some Mm. tensions with our farming communities and so this is a real issue for us and and something that I think is a bit of a wicked problem and we need to start thinking about and trying to work out a a common solution so we all know how much we've got and and where we're heading and and that approach is equitable across our farming communities. That sounds simple, a common approach and an equitable solution. Um, it's tough enough for people to you know, deal with that amount over allocated, but underlying that, um, and with it, I don't want to get into nitty gritty because this would be a webinar in itself, but there is a fair amount of debate, I'd imagine, around the how, Yes. that solution. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think we've landed it. Uh, all regional councils across the country team seem to be taking a different approach mm-hmm. in, in every single region. I think what we're hearing from the government is that they want some sort of consistency mm. with that. And, and I, I did hear from, from Parker that, you know, they ind- indicated that they wanted to do like a national approach to mm. allocation to start to resolve some of these issues or at least, you know, create yeah. a common approach across New Zealand. I think this is definitely a space to watch. And um, if there was only one thing that you're going to take from this presentation and, and go away and think more about, it's probably, you know, have you got a catchment plan or a regional plan mm. that's going through? And do they, how, how are they dealing with nitrogen? How are they dealing with mm. phosphorus? And are they going to allocate? And if they are allocating, how much are you going to get or how much are you not going to get? Mm. Because really, when we constrain things like that, it, it does impact on our farming businesses and in particular um, where we can take our farming businesses mm-hmm. in the future. It impacts, it will impact on capital value of that land as well. So it has yep. an impact on the value of your land and your opportunity to use that land going forward. Yep. Uh, yeah, we're not going to answer all the questions today in this webinar. I just want to raise the fact why it's important for people to engage in this. Is it fair to say, you know, the way things are in terms of the policy and legislative environment at the moment, we're more likely to see, I guess you'd call them top-down solutions or a, a national standard applied rather than being left to communities and regions to sort themselves? I think at the moment what we're seeing is that, um, and I'll, I'll talk about this in the next slide, is that there's a strong push for a more top-down approach. Mm-hmm. You know, from Beef and Lamb's perspective and, you know, the policy team, we see that as a real risk and mm-hmm. we'd much rather see solutions being developed from the ground up, you know, from the community up because that's where the enduring and more holistic mm. integrated solutions, you know, lie with our, with our communities. They know what the issues are and what the solutions are for them. So a top-down approach poses, a, you know, potentially a yep. real risk. Um, to farming, you know, and to our communities as well. But I think that's the tension that's out there. And at the moment, with the way things are going, we I think we'll be seeing mm. a much more top-down approach coming on in the next six months to a year. Yep. Julia? Um, and I was just thinking, um, just I guess building on what Karina was saying and tying it back, you know, at the very start we talked about um, resilient farming communities with like flexibility and adaptability. That nutrient allocation... Um, space is really critical in mm. enabling that because if we can, um, you know, and Karina and Lauren in particular spend a huge amount of their time um, working through um, these nutrient allocation um, mm. across the country, um, when we can negotiate things that um, that are equitable mm. uh, for all parts of the community, then um, we we give those farmers those op- opportunities to to focus on those mm. those outcomes and to have that flexibility. Right, moving on. Uh-huh. Next one, second to last, and then I'm out, and you can listen to someone else. Uh, but this is one. Of, so the second to last of the slides that I've got. Mm-hmm. Regulation is not necessarily a bad thing. Actually, it can be a really good thing. It can sort of allocate responsibility and opportunity to individuals so we're very clear about where we're going. And when it's well-crafted, it can provide for innovation and flexibility and and you know solutions that are really matched to the farm and to the land and and within the catchment 
And we call that outcomes-focused uh-huh. management frameworks, and that's very much what we're trying to drive through regional plans and, and with our conversations with the government, is that thinking about the outcomes that they want to achieve and then essentially leaving the how up to our communities and our farmers for, for how they get there. Because we all know with our farmers in particular, you know, give us a problem and we'll solve it. Uh-huh. If you give us a reactory problem, uh, then we'll solve that in certain ways. But if you tell us what the outcome is that you want us to achieve, then... Uh-huh. You know, we're much more likely to get on board and, and have a good crack and come up with real innovation ways, innovative ways to, to achieve that you know, for our communities as well. Yep. The issue that we have in New Zealand at the moment, though, and I think this comes back to the point that you raised around much more centralised mm-hmm. planning and direction, is that we're really seeing this input-type approach to regulation coming through. And I sort of liken that as to you know management within a straitjacket or farming mm. within a straitjacket, yep. where we've got a regulator, central government or a regional council, coming in behind the farm gate and telling us what land use we will farm and what we can do, you know, if we're going to do an activity, what are the things we have to do in relation to that activity? So it's really constraining and it, and it stifles innovation and it reduces flexibility um, and, and it sort of really disempowers communities and farmers uh-huh. and so when we're thinking about this and, and when farmers are thinking about engaging in this and, and hopefully when groups get together and they talk to regional councils about holding the pen for them, we really need to be focused on that second type of, of management frameworks which are really outcome focused. It's about saying what is the thing that we are trying to achieve in relation to the environment if that's where it's focused uh-huh. and then letting us get on with, with it. And I think catchment gr- community groups being empowered through management frameworks is a really great outcome type approach mm. that we can start to promote um, through, you know, to the government and also through regional councils. And we know that some regional councils are very much in this space thinking about empowering and supporting mm. those catchment communities. So what we're seeing here, you know, just looking through your notes, and somebody, what we're seeing though here is the risk of it becoming more input-based because effectively courts are, for whatever reason, we're not saying they're losing patience, or, or we're seeing that move from, from carrot to stick and courts are starting to say we will regulate this and make final decisions and impose rules. And Is that... That's exactly, and the re- what's driving that is, um, I talked about before, about the environment having precedence now, mm. so it's you can undertake a land use or an economic activity, but it has to be within environmental limits, mm-hmm. so that's been driving it. But also there is, it's also a symptom of lack of society's trust in what mm. we're doing, mm-hmm. and trust that we're doing it in the right way for the right reasons yep. and so now they're wanting to tell us what we can do and how to do it mm-hmm. so that have that they have certainty about how we're behaving and so that comes back to that you know the third slide or something that I showed around the social license mm-hmm. when you lose yep. the trust of a community that you're going to behave in a really legitimate accountable environmentally sustainable way then they start to interfere in your business and that can be through mm-hmm. rules which are input focused and that's what we're seeing coming through yep. New Zealand at the moment yep cool all right. Next slide. So this is quite interesting. Um, so Land Palmu's come out and they've got. So this is Landcorp, uh, rebranded to Palmu, thinking about their farming systems across New Zealand, and so they're looking at that triple bottom line: healthy. Healthy people, healthy communities, healthy animals, healthy environment, and, and starting to think about some of those cultural values as well. And when they're thinking about some of their farming systems, mm-hmm. especially in those more vulnerable landscapes like their intensive farming systems in Canterbury, they're, they're considering whether or not that current land use really lives up to the objectives that they've got for Palmo and their mm-hmm. brand. And so they're now starting to rethink that. And so this is, I think, something that we need to be aware of and, and we need to watch. And where Palmo is coming from and, and also where some of our farming leaders, I suppose, is coming from is they're coming back to those grassroots and they're really understanding their soil and their geology and their climate. Mm-hmm. And they're thinking about their land use and their farming systems in relation to the environment that they're placed in and how they can maximise um, profitability or production but within those environmental limits. And so that's reconsidering whether or not their intent, their farming land use in that place is, is the right mix of land use and system for that environment. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is just something that I wanted to raise and put out there for farmers to think about yep. because we hear a lot about good management practice and we know that if you apply good management practice, you can start to really reduce some of those environmental impacts. 
But in some places, uh, we're actually going to have to think about our natural resources, our landscapes, and then the systems we're putting in place. So good management practice in some of those areas might not be enough, and Mm. we actually need to think about those farming systems. Yeah. So is it fair to say... What's what's changing here is perhaps moving from could to should. You know, we could farm cattle on, as an example, on that environment, beef cattle, dairy cattle, whatever, but the question's now becoming more whether we should. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's a fundamental shift in the way we're thinking mm. about how we use our natural yeah. resources. Mm. We used to just, um, you know, put more things on the top, like a feedlot or yeah. a feed pad and things like that. And now, you know, with the way that the economics in that is, is going, we're mm. re-looking at whether that's the best value we can get from our investment, given the vulnerabilities of that mm. landscape. Because we know if we're trying to overcome a vulnerability, um, it can be quite expensive. Mm. And Palmer in particular is thinking about whether that's the best way to go or whether they just need to reconsider that land use so that they can optimise that farming system, you know, get the mm. best economic return um, from the investment in, in that resource in the land, soil, water, geology. Yeah, it's an interesting one because, you know, in my working career it's always been a technical issue. You know, how do we solve that problem by applying something, changing something, fencing something, planting something? But it may actually be, um, you know, we're, we're moving beyond that now. It's there's not just going to be a technical solution. Sometimes we have to make some choices about what we do or don't do in the areas. Yeah, it's it's reconsidering our businesses, Mm. um, including some other values. I think we all held those values, but now we're sort of starting to talk about them more, the cultural values, the social values. Cool. So that's probably um, me leading on to, you know, where do we go from here? Where are the opportunities and the problems? And I'm going to head back to Julia, and she's going to just take us through some of the stuff that Beef and Lamb's doing around uh, Taste Pure Nature and the environment strategy. So we start to wrap some of the issues that we've identified, um, but up very clearly into the toolbox of solutions that farmers have right now to take be empowered in this space and take ownership of the issues and, and, their, and create business resilience going forward. Thanks. Karina, Julia. That's awesome. And yeah, and I guess um, like just picking up on what Karina's saying, like when you when you listen to this, it can sound like quite um, unempowering or mm. like like what can I do? How can I be part of this? And all the, all these rules are just going to come in and land on mm. me, um, and there's nothing I can really do about it. Um, and so we really wanted to reiterate that. Um, you know, every problem also has an opportunity, uh-huh. and so a lot of the key work that we're doing through Beef and Lamb is to really turn those problems into those opportunities. And as a sector, the sheep and beef sector is um, in an amazing position. Uh-huh. It's doing awesome work, and it's just about getting that that story out there. And so, a couple of key pieces of work that um, are being done across the organisation is one around the taste pure nature, which I'm sure um, you know most farmers have probably seen by now and I don't know if there's um, other um, webinars or podcasts around around that as well um, and lots of information out there but yeah it's basically painting this vision of success um, around what sheep and beef farming in New Zealand is like mm-hmm. and the idea being getting a, a, a premium internationally yep. for that and my understanding is they're just at the moment um, working out which markets internationally they're going to target to um, to start launching that brand mm-hmm. that brand out there. Um, but I guess closer to home for us is the environment strategy, and I won't uh, focus on this too much because we've done a whole mm. a whole webinar in this, but it does, just to, to tie things in, um, we're, we're talking, like I say, talk about all of these um, things that can sound quite stressful and, and like too big a picture for us to do anything about it. But actually, so through the environment strategy, it guides all of the work we do at Beef and Lamb and all of the support we provide to farmers around these four pillars around cleaner water, carbon neutral, thriving biodiversity and healthy productive soils to really help farmers get ahead of the curve and um, know what actions they can take that um, turns all of those problems into opportunities. And as Karina said many times before, um, Governments can only come in and regulate when there's a reason um, to do so. And so if we can make sure that what we're doing um, as a farming community is, um, you know, not leading to giving um, governments the opportunity to come in, then we're basically safeguarding ourselves from having rules put put on us. The only other key point I'd just make around this is just what Karina was saying before around how, you know, our farmers, they work holistically um, and they look at the whole systems approach. Um, and so we've tried to pick that up through our environment strategy as well. So we've broken it into these four pillars um, of 
water, carbon, biodiversity and soil, but everything that we do actually intertwines and, and knits those four pillars together, together so that we're looking at that whole systems approach. Yeah. Um, and I guess this um, it just sort of shows again. It's just trying to show graphically um, how mm. those those different things um, those different yep. things fit together. And then we've got uh, two key projects, haven't we? That really deliver uh, in weaving um, the all these things together mm. and providing sort of a holistic farm systems approach. And those are uh, tailored farm environment plans and empowering, supporting catchment collectives to work together. That's exactly right. So, and we'll the next uh, two podcasts we'll dig into the detail around those two and 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 how they um, provide those tools and those things that farmers can do on ground. And I guess um, in the policy space, it's our job to make sure that the policy that's written really enables mm. those programs to be successful. Because there's, if if we have policy that says they'll shall do X Y Z then we're not going to achieve what we need to achieve through through catchment groups um, and it just doesn't empower farmers to, to do what they need to do yep. and to have that innovation. So yeah, those those different things together mm. leading through to... Excellent. <laughs> no, I think that's our last slide. Yeah. So look, that's um, a really good segue there. Well, not a segue, but a reminder, a good plug. There's another webinar um, on the environment strategy where you can listen to Julia for about 40, 45 minutes, get <laughs> right into really depth lucky. on it. <laughs> Um, and when there's others you'll see up there now, uh, when this is up, the other ones will be up around um, catchment groups and around the refresh of the farm planning program. We've covered a, a lot of background here, and the point of this was to, um, as best we can, explain a lot of what's going on, the small e environment that people are farming in at the moment in terms of regulation, outside interest, and all these sorts of things. None of that's news to sheep and bee farmers. They're aware of what's happened and how the ground metaphorically has shifted under their feet, I guess. The important thing, and we want to put out here is that um, Beef and Lamb New Zealand, I've been here a wee while, but certainly in the last couple of years we've put uh, increasing priority and resources into the environment team. You've now got a, a t environment team that's significantly bigger than it was just probably two years ago. Yeah, yeah. so I mean last year we had an environment team of I think four, a few yeah. years before that there was an environment team of one, one. now we've got an environment team of yep. seven. So. And uh, I was speaking to somebody the other day, and this is sort of my long-winded way of wrapping up, who, it's, we haven't just got a bigger team, I can tell you they're a whole lot more active too, because the person I was talking to was most impressed, not only with what Beef and Lamb was doing here, but also asked how it was going, given this team have, and you've seen some, pushed the, the boundary out a wee bit, you know, you're stretching people. So, look, what we've been through here isn't easy to understand, and it's not necessarily always comfortable and easy to deal with, um, but change never is. The key thing here is there's good people working hard and they're there if you need support or time. So the contact details for you guys are online. People yep. can email you, ring you within reason to chase <laughs> things up. So, And by all means, if, if you want to learn more about what we've done, please check out the other webinars and the podcasts that we've got on some of this information. But unless there's any last comments from no. Julia or Karina, no. we'll wrap up there. So thank you, Julia. Thank, thank you, Karina. You. And thank you all if you've listened this way through. And I definitely encourage you to check out the other webinars and recordings that we've got there. Thank you.